Episode 1081, Cleaning Up from Christmas. We can have a better title if you want it more specific. This was thematic. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson. And I'm Andy Bono. We're, we're back. We're going to try and uh, maybe continue slash clarify the conversation about history from last time. Yeah, maybe cleaning up kooky Christmas. Cleaning up kooky Christmas. Just to ma- yeah, so I know yeah. it's connected. I like it. Yeah. Well, as we suspected. Well, not, of, not that we suspected it, but I did ask for some feedback. Right, right. And this one had quite a bit of feedback. It did. Lots of questions, and you're going to clean this up. Yeah. So this is a, this episode is in response to episode 1080, the very last episode here on the feed. So if you haven't heard that, I'm guessing you're going to need to before Ben dives in. Yeah, I, we're not going to recap that whole whole episode. It was a you know it was pretty long. It was. It was, our, it was one of our longest ones we had in. I don't want to say in years, but as you look at our recent years, we tend to not be over an hour. This was one hour thirty two minutes. Uh, except on the extra feed. So if you if you like the longer, deeper episodes, oh, yeah. our deep dives tend to be an hour That's plus. That's true. Yeah. But yeah, that was a long episode. Yeah. It was a good episode. It was. A great I, finale. Yeah, I think people, I, I like the response to it, mm-hmm. um, including on the, the history stuff, because I felt like we had a kind of a range of responses from I am confused to I think I get it to, you know, a couple of people who were like, yeah, I, I, I'm tracking. That's how I've always thought about it. Right. Yeah. Which was interesting because uh, the one, one guy who commented that uh, is Catholic, you know, uh, and I do yeah. think there's a difference there. Like, I do think that there there's especially evangelical protestantism there's uh it is for better or worse and there are areas where it's for better and there are areas where it's for worse is very tied into a modernist way of thinking about things now not entirely uh, but they're much more intertwined whereas with catholicism you know we we go back to a pre-modern era, and I think it can make things like this easier to grasp. So specifically what I want to do is try and clarify uh, some of what I'm saying about pre-modern history. And I want to do this in a few different steps, okay? So the first one is I want to talk about the concept and put the Bible aside. Because as soon as we bring in the Bible, different issues start to get conflated. We start to conflate the concept with the articles of faith, right? And so we start with the concept in an extra biblical sense. Can we understand what I'm saying about pre-modern history without worrying about does it apply to the Bible or not? Okay. Then the second one would be what are the articles of faith that as Orthodox Christians were required to believe? So I mentioned original sin last time. Another really good example is, uh, and maybe the most obvious, like number one with a bullet, is the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. You can't act like that's a metaphor and be a Christian in any meaningful or historical sense of the word. Now, if we were reading a different document, it would be totally fair to say, well, maybe that's a... Maybe that's not meant to be literal history in the way we mean. So the distinction I'm trying to say here is there might be things that we would apply for how to read pre-modern history, but because of articles of faith, you know, we we're going to say something that goes against that interpretation. And the resurrection is certainly one of them. 
you know, is the one and there's others. And, and I think that that, you know, when we talk about number two, there's going to be a number that everybody can agree with. There's going to be a, a number that are maybe controversial, you know, how literal for your art, not just what's your preference, but what does the faith, the historical deposit of faith require you to believe historically happened here? Yeah. Uh, and then there'll be a number that maybe we can say, well, I think of it that way, but it's not part of the deposit of faith. So we could kind of break that down a little bit. And then the third thing is then, okay, putting those two together, how can we understand the Bible? What are the possible understandings of the Bible out there? Okay. Okay. And, you, and you've seen the feedback, so are you going to respond to anybody directly? Or are you just going no, to, I, you've I, got, I, you've, I'm running it. Yeah, we're yeah. going to flank this. Okay. So, so let's start with talking about history. What I want to propose with history, and we're, we're, none of this applies to the Bible right now. So if, if you have a, yeah, but Genesis, yeah, but what about what? Yeah. No, 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 no. You are welcome to later in the conversation say none of this applies to the Bible or all of it does. Those are both on the table. We're talking about non-biblical history right now. Okay. There, I'm going to propose, and this is slightly reductionistic, but I think it will help us to understand the concept. There are two elements present in any understanding or any construction of history. The first one is data, facts, and the second one is meaning. They are both present in any reconstruction of history, be it one that's written today or one that is written 5,000 years ago. They are not equally present in every reconstruction of history. And indeed, when you emphasize one, you, I think it might be wrong to say de-emphasize the other, but your focus changes. So if you're focused on meaning, what does this mean? You're going to write about that historical event, which is still a historical event, in a way where maybe facts to a small or large degree go by the wayside. And by facts, I mean the scientific data, the actual what you would see if you went back in time with a video camera. Let me give you an example of what that means, or why why that is, and why it's very difficult, if not impossible, to say, well, I'll just have both, okay? Let's say that you were tasked with the assignment of writing a history of the D-Day invasion, a Normandy invasion, right? And let's say, first, that I tell you, I want you to emphasize the facts. I want you to prioritize what we might call accuracy. The, the term accuracy could mean different things to different cultures. Well, what type of research are you going to do? You're probably going to do research into how many troops were on each side. Maybe what's the timeline of the invasion? How did it unfold? You know, what were the casualties? And you can see, like, even in what I'm describing, the things you would want to, to write about are very data-driven. You know, and I want to be as accurate as possible. I'm not just going to estimate there was, you know, 500,000-ish troops. No, no, no. 
I want to get down to the nitty-gritty as close to a precise number as I can. And how many of them were paratroopers? And how many of them were, you know, on the boats and, and all of that? And how many German troops were on the base? And where were they? Like, I'm going to maybe even get a map of the of the beach. And here's exactly where we know a German encampment was and all of that. Okay? That's how you would write the history of D-Day emphasizing facts. Now let's say... I gave you the same assignment, but said, I want your history not to be afactual, not just to ignore facts, but I want it to prioritize meaning. Well, what type of research are you going to do then? Well, and I don't know how many people from D-Day are still alive, but let's say you were doing this 20 years ago. You'd probably want to actually talk to soldiers who were there. You'd want to hear from them. What was their experience? What was it like? You know, you'd want your history now to capture the fear, to capture the adrenaline, to capture all of the emotions, the anticipation, the terror, the, you know, all of that. And it's not that it's going to be afactual. You're not going to take, you know, D-Day and suddenly it's set in the desert of the Sahara, right? Like, no, you've, you know, you failed at that point, but you're not going to spend as much time caring about precisely how many troops there were or where they were or anything like that. You're going to want your reader to understand what did it mean when you were waiting for that boat to drop down and knowing you were going to get shot at? What did it mean when the person standing right next to you was killed and you kept going? What did that mean? Those are both valid histories and they're not the same, okay? One of them is going to tell you the facts, the data. The other one is going to capture the experience of it. What did it mean? Well, my argument is this. If we think of those as kind of a spectrum along those lines, or maybe, you know, different levers, and different histories are going to be effective at different ones. In our modern era, where we treat History is a, first and foremost a hard science. Now, first and foremost doesn't mean exclusively, but it does mean that's the gatekeeper. Okay, so if you're you write something, you write your history of D-Day. There's a a standard that our modern era has imposed on what it means to be historical, and if you don't meet that, doesn't matter how good of a job you did on your actual assignment you're out. You know, if you didn't meet the fact standard, the data standard, you're out. Why? Because we treat history as a hard science. Okay? My argument is no other culture in history has done that prior to the modern era. It's not as though uh, there is an ignorance of facts or that facts just didn't matter or that there wasn't a desire to capture data in that sense. But where, of those two, meaning versus facts, facts comes first in the modern era, 100%. And I'm not saying that's right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm just saying that's reality. Every other culture that we have historical records of, meaning comes first. Now, sometimes they're very in balance, right? You know, it's not to say that, well, then every... Every historical account is afactual, not at all. You know, we can go back to what we call myth. We're talking like the, the, 
you know, that's like the inverse of a very raw data driven presentation of a historical event. Like you could literally just have a list of troops on D-Day and, you know, that's like all science, all data, no meaning. Myth is like that in the other direction, you know, little to no actual data, but a lot of meaning. The important thing to understand is that in both cases, they're responding to something that happened, but they're presenting it wildly, wildly different. So let me stop. Does that, as a concept, at least make sense? Yeah, I do think this is about what you were saying last time. And, and <clears throat> yeah, I, I, the part that I need to get more caught up to is how you've talked about in maybe Western culture or modern, we just do it differently. And so... I think maybe some of us, maybe I'll just say myself, I've assumed everybody's always thought about history the same way. Yeah. So that's what I'm interested from this episode to hear more about this other way of viewing history. Yeah. Well, it's it's just imagine if you didn't have that gatekeeper there. Imagine if uh, history was more judged by what it means and it wasn't a hard science. It's like, well, what would that even look like? We don't have a concept of what that would look like. That's why this is hard. That's why this is hard. But imagine people responding and writing about historical events without caring about data. (laughs) We have a hard time. And not caring is putting it too strongly, but caring a lot less or in a different way. Mm -hmm. Right? So another, another illustration of this I was thinking about is I remember years ago watching a behind the scenes feature on Braveheart. Okay. And uh, the behind the scenes feature was a bunch of historians evaluating Braveheart. And they were not pleased mm-hmm. with the results. You know, most famously, there's the, the battle that's kind of in the middle of the movie of we can take our lives or they'll never take our freedom is historically the Battle of Sterling Bridge. And there is no bridge in the movie. And Hmm. it's one of those historical points historians like to rip on. So these historians just, you know, were ripping the movie to shreds, except one guy in the documentary. And it's been like 20 years since I've watched this documentary, but it's just seared into my mind. This is a Scottish guy. He was a he was a historian, Scottish historian. He was wearing a kilt. Nice. And he's like, none of it. The the, the details are wrong, but they captured what it meant. Like they captured who William Wallace was to us. It's like, wow. Okay. That guy is looking at history in a different way than every one of his peers in this Mm -hmm. documentary is. They're not wrong in their critiques. But what they didn't see that he saw was a different view of history. You know how there's tons of movies that are, in quotes, based on a true story? Yeah. I think I hear you saying it's always based on a true story. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? 100%. 100%. I know yeah. we're not talking Bible yet. Yeah. But eventually I'll be interested to hear if yeah. you think Bible is. And I, I think the difference would be, you know, like in a historical movie, historical fiction. I don't want to go so far as to say pre-modern history is that because that slaps with a label that's not accurate, right? Like you're trying to tell a fictional story, like Gladiator, you know? No, no, no. We can't say that, you know, pre-modern history is the equivalent of Gladiator. I know. I guess what I mean is if something is being presented as history. Yeah. 
you'd rather have us think in the same line as how we think about a base on a true story. Yeah. Some parts maybe happen kind of like this, but it's it's told this way for a purpose. Yeah, and, and that's even true of modern history. I mean, that's like any historical account is a reconstruction. Well, a reconstruction, a very, very good reconstruction can approach the truth, but it will never be the truth. No, it, it never matches what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, and that's a well-written history. Like, you know, a David McCullough book, uh, he did the John Adams biography in 1776. And he's, he's a great historian. Like, what makes him a great historian? Well, he's first and foremost a great storyteller, you know, and he, he's, I'm not trying to compare him to pre-modern history because he's, taking care of his facts. And as far as I know, he's well regarded as a historian from a technical perspective. But what we consider history, the way you think about it, is with the lever for facts ramped up. The lever for meaning there, but secondary. What you need to understand is pre-modern, the lever for meaning is first, always the lever for facts to varying degrees and we go back far enough that degree is way down less relevant so it's always i'm just repeating back what you just said it's always most important what it means yeah and then the level of accuracy is important at varying levels yes yes that's 100 percent accurate okay so that's the concept and when you say means you're talking about what feelings it's supposed to evoke or what it led to. I mean, I, yeah. Like, like I'm trying to, I know I'm just getting down to the nitty gritty, but when you, if that's the most important thing, what exactly does what it means mean? Yeah. That's a good distinction because we can be careful to slip, you know, into a postmodern understanding and say, well, the facts don't matter. It's like, no, the pre-modern understanding would be, what does it mean would be, how is it true? Like, what is the mm-hmm. deep truth behind this? Not just my personal response and how I feel, but how is it true to, and in the case of myth, to us as a culture? How, how, how does it define us? Would you say, like, how is it thematically true? Yeah, and then this is where like the dance between facts and meaning starts to, they really get intertwined and they can't be separated. You know, if you're writing a history of, say, like the, the, the Gospels, and part of what's going on in the Gospels is an argument for the physical resurrection of Jesus, right? Literally. And so their meaning is tied to that fact, but the meaning is still the primary driver. You know, we've talked about the Gospel of Mark before. Like, the Gospel of Mark is simultaneously a the story of Jesus and his resurrection and the story of the early church. That's a complicated topic, and it's probably too much of a can of worms to open here. But, you know, there's multiple things going on, but they're, the meaning is derived from a historical event, so they're very intertwined. We did an episode on Mark, didn't we? We did. Yep, yeah, we, we, we've done an episode on Mark. Was it the one called X Marks a Spot? Probably. That sounds like something we, <laughs> we'd call it. I'm going to try to find it. Okay. So, conceptually, um, that is what's going on with pre-modern, modern understandings of history. I'm, I'm sure there are aspects of that that 
could be disputed. I'm probably being reductionistic in some ways. But what I do want to say is what I'm describing there isn't an opinion. This is actually how it was. To, it is a fact, if you will. This mm-hmm. is the actual way history was understood. Okay. Now, as we start to line that up with the Bible, that's a more complicated discussion. And it's a more complicated discussion because we have to bring in our articles of faith, right? I mentioned the resurrection a number of times. So we might say if this was a non-Christian historical document, well, I don't think it's actually saying that somebody was physically resurrected. We don't have that option if we're going to be Christians. And for what it's worth, I do think that even within the context of the history, it's fairly obvious that's what the writers of the New Testament are actually arguing. They are actually defending a literal physical resurrection. I don't think you can get around that. You could say they're wrong, uh, they're mistaken in some way, but the, the writer or they're liars or whatever, but the, the writers are actually defending that. Um, but let's say it was a little more ambiguous we'd still have to believe that. It's a tenet of faith, okay? Give you another example. I've mentioned I believe historically in original sin. I believe in original sin as a historic event, okay? Now, what does that actually mean? Does that mean, you know, there's a lot of room for what that means? That could mean that Genesis 2 and 3 are captured word for word with what literally happened. Uh I don't believe that. It it could mean that, you know, Genesis 2 and 3 are a mythic representation of this historic event. I think that's closer. But in any case, there's an, an article of faith that says original sin historically happened. So at no point in my interpretation, if I want to remain an Orthodox Christian, am I permitted to say that's a metaphor, it's just talking about, you know, human corruption, or it's a metaphor for the fall of an early civilization to tie it into the last episodes. Mm-hmm. No, original sin as a tenant of faith is there. And we could go through and we could establish other ones like that. Okay. But then you start to get into, like, where's it a little more ambiguous? So you mentioned, like, we talked a little bit about Esther last time, mm-hmm. and you mentioned that, you know... Maybe the exact words is not word for word that's captured, but Esther and Mordecai had a conversation, you know. And like what happened with the Esther story. Yes. To me, I don't need the words to be the same as long as the general action that we saw right. that that happened and there were people that that happened to. So I, I don't think there's any doubt that Esther's a historical event. And I think that and I do mean this very sincerely, like I think it's helpful to honestly read not just scripture, but old histories as though they're literally true. I actually think that's a helpful way to just just do it. Like you don't need to sit there and try and parse out what's myth, what's not. Uh, I don't. I, w- I would be very hesitant to agree with the argument that Esther and Mordecai having a conversation, you know, whatever level of detail we you're going down to, that's not a tenet of faith. Yeah, it's not a tenet of faith, but like that story hinges on that one conversation. Like that's the only thing people remember from that story. Yeah, but if that didn't like if that's meaning and not data, if that's meaning and not data, I don't think we lose anything in our faith. Yeah, but you could say that about tons of the Bible. Yeah. Yes, you could. 
So what I'm saying is I I think, and this is maybe another area where Catholics have an easier time than Protestants. I don't say that as a criticism. It's just different ways of thinking. We've talked about this before. Protestant theology, and I think especially evangelical theology, likes to say this is the belief right here. This is it. Catholic theology establishes boundaries, okay? So what I'm talking about is like what is required to be – what are you required to accept as a doctrine of faith, as a tenant of the faith? That's a boundary. You know, that's a hard boundary. Uh, Whatever you think about the historicity of Esther, the fact that God inspired the writing and redaction and editing of, of that book and it communicates God's truth to us is a tenant of faith. You don't just get to say it's a nice story. You, you, you don't get off on that one. You, so there's boundaries here. Within those boundaries is your belief, what you're describing, totally on board. But my argument is within those boundaries is also a less literal understanding, a, a understanding of it as history that is more focused on meaning than data. And I, bo- I would argue both of those understandings are within those boundaries. The reason why I lean more towards that one than where you're landing is my entire understanding of pre-modern history pushes me in that direction. So you already came in here with that point of view, and I came in with a different point of view. So that, yes. So we're just seeing things differently. Yeah, yeah. But I think the key thing is the challenge I would give to – you and to, to people who are thinking like you is this. And again, I'd say as far as you're just reading your Bible, there's no point to be sitting there like, oh, man, Mordecai probably didn't say that exactly. Like, just read it as though he did. Honestly, seriously, everybody should, including me. Like, everybody should. Just go in. Like, I think that's the faith like a child. Just read the Bible like that. But if you want to have the actual discussion about it, my challenge would be this. If, if, if we can agree with this understanding of pre-modern history, and if we can agree that outside of, un, and not just the resurrection and original sin, I'm not saying those are the only ones, but a number of things like that are, are the positive faith doesn't require that literal reading. Why are we carving out the Bible as an exception to that way of understanding history? Yeah, I guess I'm just, the first thing I think is, who gets to pick what was real or what legitimately happened and what didn't? Well, I, I don't think anybody's picking necessarily. I guess I disagree with that because it's it's more of a, it's a scholarly and academic debate, like, and different people could have different views. I, I think that's like where there's still what I hear when you yeah. say that is still the evangelical drive to get to here's what it is. Whereas like I'm like, I don't know what it is. Yeah. I, I mean, sometimes you can win me over. I'm not sure if I'm going to change how I view history through the Sci-Fi Christian podcast tonight. But I mean, I like list, I like learning more about it. I just, I guess <laughs> maybe it is the differences, like you said, between Protestant and Catholic or just even where your mind was just in general, because you you definitely think on a different intellectual level, I'd say. And so, 
I think I'm just going to keep thinking it's all real. Well, and that's fine. <laughs> like the the por- the point I do want to make sure you and the listeners get is if we take the Bible out of it to understand the larger point about history. Because to me, I what I the the point I do care a lot about. Like if you if you read the Bible and you're like you know, starting with Genesis two, this is. Word for word, for syllable for syllable. You know, even those people who like the synoptic gospels, that Jesus says the same thing three slightly different ways. And there's people out there who say he said it three times in that exact, like, God bless you. I think you're wrong, but God bless you. And I'm not saying you're going that far at all. But what I do want to say and what I do care about is is blowing up this modernist understanding of history as the only way that history is. Mm. And part of the reason for that is modernism is a mind virus. Modernism is the ultimate midwit trap. Oh, are we doing a midwit episode tonight? Oh, yeah, we are. Yeah, okay. we are on the extra feed. If you want to hear the midwit of the month, you got to come to the extra right. feed. And the reason for that is modernism it has a very high opinion of itself. Here's all the reason those myths were wrong, because they're literally not historically accurate. We, Of course we can tell that. You've got to blow up the modernist trap if you're going to see the deep truth. And I'm not even talking about the Bible right now. I'm just talking about the deep truth of pre-modern culture and literature. You've got to get your head out of that modernist trap. So I would at least challenge that. I would say, if you're not, if you, if if applying it to the Bible's a, a step too far, mm-hmm. totally fair. I yeah. get that. Like I, I genuinely do. I'm going to keep arguing, but I get it. But at least come as far with me to see history as being a more complex topic than facts first or facts only. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It is harder when it when you bring the faith element in, which right. you said right at the beginning. Right. That's why we, we start there. Yeah. We start there. Good. Should I hit the music? Or hit the music. That's, I mean, that's I, it. Yeah, I think I understand a little bit better this, this week than we did last week. Uh, yeah, the faith element just brings in a whole different... Uh, it's a category I, I... I guess I'll just take one step back and say, in some ways, it feels like it's a change of worldview. Not necessarily in relation to your faith, but how you view history. Yes. Hey. It is. It actually, it, yeah. it doesn't seem like that. It is like that. Yeah. And the worldview specifically is the poisonous modernist mind virus. <laughs> so with your <laughs> negative connotation aside, it's hard to change your worldview just from a couple conversations. It is. No, I, I totally get yeah. that. Like, like, How long have you been thinking through this? I don't know. Probably 10 years. <laughs> so, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, like the reason I call modernism poisonous is... It's like it's almost you know the Ian McGilchrist, which we're going to get back to soon, by the way, of of like the the master and the emissary. Mm-hmm. Modernism, you know, if takes the emissary. It should have an emissary role, but it asserts itself as a master. In other words, modernism is a powerful tool, but it should not be driving our view of reality. And modernism says everything else is wrong. Mm. And it and you, and if you want a great example of that, come over to the extra feed for midwit of the month. How oh, we should do that? And then, oh, I don't know if that's next though, because next we, up, we can do that next. Okay, let's do it. All right, listeners, that's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben Devoto. Oh, we're the Cyber Christian signing off. Right, goodbye.